never did I ever dream that I would not only meet Hugh Hefner or Hef, as he insisted we all call him. That's why when I say things like, well, I was talking to Hef, you know, that's not something you can uh, at first easily drop into a sentence and have your friends keep a straight face. We're in a time period where Diana has only about six more years on this earth, but at least she was able to break free and hopefully experience a measure of happiness in the years after the imagined events of Spencer. That's Richard Roper, the Chicago Sun-Times, one of my favorite film critics. You remember him for years, of course, Roper and Ebert. He's talking about our feature review this week. It is called Spencer. The great Ben Lyons uh, called me after he saw it to bro, you gotta see Spencer. Kristen Stewart's gonna win an Academy Award. I said, what? He said, yeah, she's gonna win an Oscar for Best Actress. Go see this movie. He called me a few weeks ago. The film is now in theaters everywhere. And I don't know if she's gonna win an Oscar. She's definitely gonna get nominated, though. It's a great performance. That's right. That Kristen Stewart from Twilight, that is the new movie we're reviewing. Also, Curb Your Enthusiasm. We now have three episodes in the books. Mm. I figure me and Cody can start talking a little bit about the new season of Curb. Ron's Gone Wrong. I took my kiddos to go see that. Ed Helms, Jake Dylan Grazier, uh, Zach Alphanakis, the story of Barney and his robot. And our old film, Colors. Never saw it. Dennis Hopper directed Sean Penn, Robert Duvall. Finally got around to seeing it, and I enjoyed it. Our wild card? Leonard Malton. That's right. A man who needs no introduction. We went hot off of Justine Bateman. We went to 76-year-old Jeffrey Lyons, legendary film critic. Now another legendary film critic. 70-year-old Leonard Malton. Uh, the guy worked 30 years at Entertainment Tonight as a new book called Starstruck. So I tell you one thing, Chris, we are definitely hitting that millennial market. Next week, Greg Cody will join us. <laughs> Back in my day. <laughs> Uh, uh. As always, please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to my friend Mike Diesenhoff, who sent me a very funny voice message. I never send voice messages, but he sent a very funny one to me after he heard Cody's story about uh, shopping carts and about a woman who was a grievous offender. So he, clearly, I mean, that was the highlight of last week's pod, yeah. Cody. There's a lot of people here talking about shopping cart rituals. It's crazy how we do like a sports podcast. This is a movie podcast, but the things people remember are like the little like life. And honestly, it's it's curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, that is like kind of what we're talking about here. People like just life stuff, things yeah. everybody can relate to. It's just it you can't miss with those kind of topics. No, hundred percent. It's evergreen, as they say. One topic that I remember telling that story. I finally told you guys about the fact that you know I went to that movie theater and saw the last yeah. duel. Yeah. One of the things somebody mentioned me, they go, "How did you in that review not talk about the hair?" Like that is a good point. The Last Duel might feature some of the worst hair ever by major acclaimed actors. Google right now, Matt Damon's hair in that movie. I mean, the mullet, the fact that he had to sit around there on set for six months, they get interrupted by COVID. Like, he had to keep that hairstyle. Like, Ben Affleck's hair, at least, okay, you know, he's bleached blonde. He's having a good time, whatever. I mean, it's, it's definitely not a look Ben Affleck would wear in 2021. Now, would you Oh, wow. This? But look at oh, Damon's wow. hair, Cody. Like, that is, imagine, like, you're not just doing that once in a while. For six months, that's your hair. You're going shopping on the weekends. You're going into Target. Like, oh, is that Matt Damon? What happened to him? Look at his hair. I didn't know we did mullets in medieval times. <laughs> I thought that was like more of a modern haircut. He looks like Theo Vaughn, the podcaster. It's a really obscure <laughs> reference, but the people out there that get it, like that, that he looks get, like Theo. If you get a Theo Vaughn reference, no, I'm gonna have to Google that. Uh, <laughs> that's my last thought here in the last duel. My experience, the hair, everything about it. Uh, like I said, please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. This is episode number 198, so we are zeroing in on 200 episodes of Cinephile, 78 at ESPN, 97 at Cadence 13, and it'll be 25 with me and Chris once we get to 200. So uh, we look forward to the celebrations. Look at you. And, uh, 
look at you. I know, it, it's shocking even to me. <laughs> we're, we're, let's hope we get there. Two more to go. Let's two more to go. Um, let's talk first about Spencer. Here's the story. During her Christmas holidays with the royal family at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, Diana Spencer, struggling with mental health problems, decides to end her year-long marriage to Prince Charles. It's written by Stephen Knight, directed by Pablo Lorraine. I saw that name and I said, oh no. He did the film Jackie, which critics love. People like to ask me, you know, what's a movie that critics love which you weren't crazy about? Jackie is the one. Natalie Portman. Really? Uh, yeah, she's an excellent movie, but God, I found it to be just an insufferable bore. So when I saw Pablo Lorraine, I go, I could be in for it here. But it, it definitely has some hallmarks of his style, which is to say it's very interior, it's very claustrophobic. As Chris and I have discussed, we're, you and I are not huge in the royal family. Our wives are. But yeah. if I was to say to you, Lady Diana, I mean, all I would know going into this movie experience is tragic death, right? Probably wasn't happy being a royal. And this mm-hmm. is a reimagining of her lifestyle. So it, it's fascinating in that it does take a little while to get going. Let's be honest. The first 20, 30 minutes, I'm like, all right, we're... How long is it? How long is the movie? I believe it's been an hour 50. So the okay. first 20 or 30, you're like, okay, you're, this is a story about a person's mind and being in that mind, and we're not going to need car chases or gunfire. So this is just going to be Lady Diana living through her life. This could be a bit of a slow crawl. But it starts to pick up steam once you realize what is subjective, what is objective. You know, how much of this are you seeing through Lady Di's eyes, what is actually happening? And I think the filmmakers are helped by the fact it's a reimagining. This is not a documentary. It's not necessarily based on real events. This is, hey, here's how we think Lady Diana was probably living at that point of her life. Reminding me in some ways of an Ingmar Bergman film and that it's all about interiors and, as I say, claustrophobic. And Kristen Stewart is fantastic. I'm going to guess you and I are both not Twilight people. Obviously, no. we know the, the franchise. But, uh, listen, I can't compare her work to that, but this is like a legit great performance. I mean, not just the hair, which is very Diana-esque. Again, back to the hair topic. That blonde hair, kind of poofy, that style. The I can't see her as Lady Di, but I did watch this trailer yeah. and she pulls it off. Like, you look at Kristen Stewart without right. looking like her and you don't think she would look like Lady Di but she pulls it off. Completely. It's like when Julianne Moore was in the movie Game Change, which was a great book on HBO, and she played Sarah Palin. You go, Sarah Palin doesn't look anything like Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is a redhead, blah, blah, blah. But once yeah. you get the makeup and the hair, you go, oh, you know what? They actually nailed it. So similarly, yeah. you're right. Kristen Stewart, you wouldn't think that she's Lady Diana's doppelganger, but she's able to pull it off. And, and ultimately, you have a real strong sense of sympathy watching this film. You go, man, this woman was being put through so much. Uh, there's just no privacy. That's the biggest takeaway. Like, uh, the life of a royal? No, no thanks. I mean, everything you do is being watched and governed. And Timothy Spall, who's an actor who I love, former a previous guest actually in Cinephile, great British actor. He's excellent in the film as Major All-Star Gregory. He's always got his eyes on her, staring her down, making sure what she's doing. Sally Hawkins, terrific actress, again, British actress. She plays Maggie, one of the few confidants of the film. But there's no doubt, you're watching this movie to watch a great performance by Kristen Stewart. I think she'll be nominated for an Academy Award. I'm giving the film three Maple Leafs. Again, I think it's a little idiosyncratic. It's certainly not to all tastes. I don't think it's going to get, like, nominations across the board for, like, Best Picture Director, but as far as a star-making performance, I thought it delivered the goods. Three Maple Leafs for Spencer. It, it, it's pretty wild that you're able to make a movie about somebody's life and take creative liberties. Like, I know she's no longer with us, so it's not like she's here watching it, but, like, her family might. It's just weird. Like, I'm just imagining if a movie was made about me yeah. and it wasn't, re- like, wasn't what action... I'm, I'm sure is. I'm sure in this movie it's pretty accurate, but... That's just funny to me that you can make a movie and it doesn't have to be accurate. Yeah, it is always the... um it's always the escape clause. Like with Argo, Ben Affleck was criticized because some events were not accurate. And he said, well, listen, I'm not making a documentary. Like, it's a feature <laughs> film. It's my version of the events. I'm like, it's a weird, it's like, like gray area with like, we're doing a movie on this real thing. Yeah. But just so you know, not like the, we made up some shit. Right. We made up some shit. Right. I just needed you to know that. We just going to say it real fast, like, like at the end of like a, a <laughs> like a medicine commercial. Like, yeah. just so you know, nothing in this movie really is true. We just had to like get some funny shit in there. Right. 
we, we turned three characters into two. The woman was actually a man. They actually never <laughs> right. got married. Eventually, they were divorced. Right. This kid was dumb. Like, what? All this stuff changed. Right. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's our version of it. What do you want? So to you do? don't. So you don't get to her dying at all, right? This is no, no. This is just her version. Like, she's alive. Did you suffering. get a feeling that there might be more, like another one, part two, where they continue on, or no, it's like I get it, this the sense that this this was a chapter. They're looking at a, a certain aspect of her life. This is a microcosm of what she was going Paint through. Paint the picture right? exactly. Right. Here's 48 hours in Lady Di's life. Here's what you can imagine her life to be. So I definitely recommend Spencer uh, for those out there looking to see that kind of a film. Uh, before we get into the Ron's Gone Wrong, let's do a little comedy here because that'll keep things light. Curb your enthusiasm. The life and times of Larry David and the predicaments he gets himself into with his friends and complete strangers. Here's what's shocking to me, Chris. Curb your enthusiasm has now been around for 20 years. I believe this is the 12th season of Curb, and he's taking his time, right? There was that big hiatus after the Michael J. Fox season, which was great. He was in there Parkinson's, and he wasn't sure if he was shaking the, the coke on purpose. Yeah. He, I think he took like five years off, and I was like, oh, I guess it's done. But he's the only guy I can think of, Larry David, who HBO has this deal where it's like, hey, whenever you want to do stuff, let us know. They don't mm-hmm. give him any notes. It doesn't have to be eight episodes or ten episodes or twelve. Whatever you want, Larry. Uh, it can go whatever length you want. Like, they, they give the guy carte blanche. It's amazing. Every other director, filmmaker, you name it, trust me, the suits will say, hey, listen, I wouldn't mind if you changed this. You can make this a little bit tighter. Not sure about that character. Oh, Larry yeah. David's the only guy in the world that can do whatever he wants, and he deserves it. And he's earned it because Curb remains, and this is the shocking thing to me. Like, The Simpsons, well, how many years has it been? 30 years? There's no way The Simpsons right. is as good as it once was. Curb enthusiasm, and maybe it's not as great as it once was, but laughs per minute, it's still, to me, as funny as anything on television. Well, they just take such big hacks. And so, like, sometimes they hit, and it's so great. Sometimes they miss, and sure. you're like, oh, this is a bit of a stretch. Right. But it's just, like, it's just a fun, bingeable show. Like, there's not a lot of shows, like The Office. You could just, I could throw on any episode of The Office, and I'm going to enjoy it. You throw on any episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm throughout all the 11 seasons, and it's just a fun watch. I love it. it it's Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's yeah, Larry David. I agree, because you know what you're getting with Larry David. And to your point about binging, I don't know if I could binge it, because, like, he's just so cringe-inducing. There's so many moments where you're like, oh, my God, this guy's such a insufferable character and of course the question always gets asked you know how much of you are the guy on tv and if you ask his daughters or his ex-wife or his close friends they all say you know larry has those thoughts he just doesn't say them like if you actually hung out with him he's a normal guy but he wishes he could be the character on the show who starts pointing out the ridiculous things he sees in life that he's offended by I just like, I like how they just give things names. It's kind of a Seinfeld move where yes. it's like the lady that sits on the, the, the couch, she's a plopper. And like, I, that happened like three weeks ago and now I'm like calling everyone ploppers in yeah. my life. Like now in, in the last episode, there's people at a dinner party who sits in the, the middle and they dr- yeah. I, the middler, I, I'm a good, I, you would be a great middler. Yes. Like I got at a dinner party. I, I got to text say. my buddy, Mike Calman, Mark Calmanichi. I hadn't actually seen the episode yet. Sunday night, I was watching football, that Titans game, and then I watched Succession. I was tired. I went to bed. The next day, he texts me. He goes, you, sir, would be a great middler. I, and I knew it was a curb reference. I go, haven't seen it yet. Watching it tonight. Watch the episode. And yes, I would be a great middler. I, I got a text, too, from a friend saying that I would be a good middler, too. <laughs> I, I, feel like, I feel like me and you, a couple people, oh. people. You know, we're people, people. Pass first point cards, right? We're dishing the rock left and right. Hey, yep. this will be interesting to you. This will be interesting to yeah, you. Yeah. What I'm happy about the show is that even as it's changed, like, listen, um, you know, his ex-wife isn't nearly as much of a part of it. Although Cheryl is back for a couple episodes this this year as an acting teacher. But I love the fact he's been able to incorporate new characters. And I told you how much I love Albert Brooks. The fact that Albert Brooks was in the first episode. And the connection is, of course, Bob Einstein, who was amazing in the show, Super Dave, passed away. Albert Brooks is his brother. So him showing up for an episode was amazing as a as a COVID hoarder. I mean, it was just so funny to see yeah. Albert Brooks in that role. Again, 
and, and as everyone knows who really loves the show, it's just an outline. Larry puts together an outline, and then they're ad-libbing everything. You go, how could that be? I'm like, well, if these actors are so talented, and they're so sharp, and they're so good at improvisation, you just trust your talents to come out. And Larry David said, listen, I've become better improvisation. You know, there's other actors who have become better over time. But I'm glad that certain mainstays have remained. I can never get enough of Leon. I think Leon is one of the funniest characters ever. Like, J.B. Yeah. Smoove, I can't get enough. There's some guys, Chris, like, okay, I thought I kind of got this joke. But him and Jeff Garland as the agent, I love those guys. It is pretty random that J.B. Smoove is just now permanently living with with Larry. <laughs> but I'm with you. I mean, he see, he's the perfect ad-libber, that guy. Yes. Because, like, it's like if you wrote lines for him, the way he's going to say it naturally is just so much funnier. So it's yeah. just like, yeah. I love that. And people close Jeff to Garland shows. Too. He, yeah, yeah, Jeff Garland, like, just because Jeff's been around. Like, he just seems like a, just a loyal, friendly agent. And there's always, like, a bit of a side to Jeff. Like, wow, I didn't realize he was cheating on his wife. And now we, we, he had to get a girl had an abortion in the season. I'm like, wow, I didn't, didn't, didn't think Jeff had that kind of pull. They walked the line, like they in the last episode. They were talking about like they and stuff with like yeah. the LGBT stuff, and, and like they, they'll they'll walk on some lines. But Larry yeah, yeah. David just has this like like charm to him that like right. you know he can just kind of right. get away with it. You mean they or mean you? I'm not really sure where we're going with this here. Even He's last like, time, that yeah. agent was like he was like J on J crime. He just kept making Jewish jokes to the guy. <laughs> that's the another thing. Larry David can do that because he's Larry David. Like yeah, you know, that's... The, the funniest episode, the funniest line of that first episode when he's talking Albert Brooks's funeral. Because let me tell you something else. Big Jesus guy, huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'm not. He's full of shit. What is this guy talking about? But I, I just uh... think I, for those who don't like him, I, I know there's a few who are like, ah, listen, I just find the character he's so irascible. But I just find it endearing because I think so often he says the stuff we wish we could say. He's pointing out the stupidity of modern life, and as you said, very Seinfeldian. The way they come up with those characters, the plopper, and uh, this person to that, like the, uh, the fact that he slammed the door. Even he had like a very b- brief thirty-second riff about walking when they asked him to take a walk. He was I like walking as a secondary purpose. I don't like it as yeah. a first purpose. Like if I'm yeah. going golfing, the walking is part of it. But I would never just go for a walk. And I'm like, no, oh, yeah. that's actually a great point. It is observant and it's also funny. See, like some jokes are just throwaway jokes and some jokes they bring back at the end. Like at the start of the last episode, they talk, he made a joke about a hot dog eating contest. I'm like, oh, that was just a fun little observation. And then it turns out to be a theme throughout the whole episode. So yeah. it's... I, also I love, like I love their callbacks. They're great yeah, with the callbacks. callbacks are good. And, and bringing in new characters, as I mentioned, you know, Ted Dance used to be a big part of the show. He no longer is. Now you got Vince Vaughn in there. Vince Vaughn, who looks like, I mean, he looks so different. A bags in the eyes, receding hairline. He's put on weight. Yeah. But I, I do think Vince Vaughn's an interesting guy to throw up there. Like John Hamm. He kind of ha- has that funk house voice. He, he kind of has a deep voice. I think that's why they thought he could be like right. the lineage of funk house. I think it kind of makes it. Patton Oswalt showing up on the show as well. Like that was a surprise. Like, yeah. Sean Penn last year was unbelievable. That was good casting. That was good casting. I mean, Clive Owen has said, and Clive Owen's done a lot of things in his life. He's in impeachment, for God's sakes, playing Bill Clinton. He was in Closer. He's been nominated for awards. He said the highlight of his life was Curb. He said, when I got that call saying, hey, we want you to curb your enthusiasm, he's like, I lost my mind. I was so excited. And that's so random. Like, why would Larry David say, you know myself, I got to get Clive Owen in the show. But I can't imagine an actor who would turn down a spot. Wanda Sykes was really funny on the show. I mean, Vivica A. Fox. I was having the thought watching the third episode that, I don't know, I think the show... Has I, I wish that Larry and Cheryl never got divorced. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know. Like, I know I'm kind of just like undercutting the last couple seasons, but I just, I, I feel like that was the heyday of the show when I he do, was married to Cheryl. I do think she's a great actress, and I do agree with that. All the jokes about marital, you know, dysfunction, yeah. that was really yeah. like one of the strong parts of the show. I agree with yeah. you. And now they're just kind of like having her hang around as like a friend. It's right. like that storyline to me is like, if, if either be married to her or have it like either be involved with her, like just her not. just being a character in the show now is just. Yeah, it feels like it's kind of like half measures. The Ted Danson stuff was funny. Like I I, like Ted when Dance. Larry was met like beefing with him because yeah. they were dating. How That's about Lucy cool, Liu but. showing up on the show? 
show very random as well. The, the yeah. actress who I love this year, though, I think the woman playing the bad actress, the Latina actress, I think she's fantastic. Because yes. there's a real talent to play a shitty actress. And she, she's doing it so well. Like the line that's, readings, the dancing, yeah. like that is that is fantastic. That's acting. one of those jokes that they're going for that's like, it's not like Larry's not going to put some terrible actress in a show. Like that's one, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it still yeah. works because she's funny. So it's like, it's that's yeah. the show in a nutshell. Like it's, it's a it big is, hack. Yeah. And it's still funny. No, I think I think you described it actually perfectly. They take big hacks. Sometimes there's hit and miss. When they connect, though, it's incredible. I mean, yeah. one of the all-time greatest lines ever was when the woman died in in the in the newspaper. Rather than beloved aunt, it said beloved aunt because they had one misspelling on <laughs> the word. I'm like, oh my, how could you do an episode about this? Even yeah. um, I loved um, uh, Bob Odenkirk. He played Porno Gill. And he's talking yeah. about getting Tabasco sauce up his ass. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like they, especially those first few episodes, you're like, holy, like 20 years ago, Curfew Enthusiasm was was throwing haymakers, but it is profanely funny, and it's just great to have it back. I think Chris and I agree. It's not nearly what it once was, but is there, are we happy to have Curb episodes? Of course. I hope he does mm-hmm. 30 years. I hope he does as many episodes as yep. he wants to do. Uh, Curb Enthusiasm for me, please. What the hell? Quickly yeah. now, let's get to Ron's Gone Wrong, the story of Barney, an awkward middle schooler, and Ron, his new walking, talking, digitally connected device. Ron's malfunction set against the backdrop of the social media age launched them on a journey to learn about true friendship. I like this movie a lot better when it was called Big Hero 6. That This is one of these kids' oh, wow. movies. That, it's one of these kids' movies. It's that just, just a remake. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm like, it's just a pastiche of all these other films that I've already seen. So it's nice to hear Zach Galifianakis' voice, and my kids certainly enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, the AMC, I think it was maybe $12 tickets. It wasn't too bad. It was like a weekend matinee. You know, the popcorn and slushies went down smooth, but it was not particularly a strong kids' film. I know you haven't taken your daughter yet to the theater, have you, Chris? You're not yet at that age. She's three, right? She's two and a half, three. I have not taken her to see this yet. I haven't taken her. We've only gone to one movie with my daughter so far. When do the kids start stop liking movies? Are, you at the, are your kids at the age where they only like movies? Like, do your kids ever walk out of a movie and be like, no, nope, didn't really like no, that? No, you're right. They're as filthy as they just like everything. 13, 10, 5, and 3. <laughs> what do you think? I thought it was great. You know what I mean? Because I think they're just happy to be entertained by movie images. That's a good images, time. Right? It's good to be a kid, huh? Yeah, I liked it. I liked that one, too, that one joke. I guess, what'd you like? I just liked all of it. I just thought it was funny. I liked the slushy. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I like popcorn. Popcorn was good. I thought, I thought the robot was great. I'm like, okay, great. Ron, by the way, Ron's Gone Wrong, great title. I'll give it that. Definitely a good title. Yeah. Too many beliefs for that one. And one more, because we've got to discuss an old film before we get to our wild card, which is Leonard Malton. That is a film called Colors. An experienced cop and his rookie partner patrol the streets of East Los Angeles while trying to keep the gang violence under control. It's directed by the great actor Dennis Hopper, one of the few films he directed. Of course, he was Academy Award nominated in the film Hoosiers. Uh, you remember his work from Easy Rider, so on and so forth. But what's interesting about Colors and what prompted me to watch it was I was thinking about the early 90s. They had all those gangster films about gangs, particularly in Los Angeles. Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, New Jack City. So Colors kind of predated that. I'd never seen Colors, so I wanted to see it. What's interesting about it is that it's more from the police perspective, which actually makes it not as fascinating. Like, Boys in the Hood was great because... You see Ice yeah. Cube and Cuba Gang Jr. and you're like, oh, I've, I've, I have not been to East Los Angeles. I don't know South Central LA. I don't know what that world is like. This is more of a classic, oh, cops investigating the gangs, and here we go. What's interesting is you do have some good casting. Don Cheadle, surprisingly, showing up as a gangster. He plays Rocket. But it's more about the relationship between the two cops. So as a cop movie, I enjoyed it. As a gang movie, I don't think it really fits in that genre. But Robert Duvall, Sean Penn, two brilliant actors. It's fun to see them together. Again, fitting that police archetype. Robert 
of all the old, wise and veteran, Sean Penn, young, hothead, angry. He's in love with Maria Conchita Alonso, young Latina actress. So I think I recommend the film just because of the Are they the good chemistry. people? Like, are they good people cops? Or are they good the, cops or bad cops? So Duvall is the good cop. He's actually experienced and genuine. Sean Penn has a good heart, but he's a hothead. You know, he's just crazy, intemperate. And I mean, at one point, it's a really good scene. Duvall's telling him why he wants to just get a new partner. And he says, you know... He's like, you know when you're like in a marriage and he's like, you love each other, but you fight all the time. You don't want to kill each other. And then you realize once it's over, you're never going to do that again. He's like, that's you and me. <laughs> like early in his career, he had a hothead partner. He's like, I'm not doing that again. Like, I love the guy. Like, you're a great dude, but we're not doing this. And Sean Penn's more like frustrated by it. They do tell the one joke in the movie. Speaking of callbacks, they, they don't quite start the movie with this, but Duvall tells the joke early on to Sean Penn. And then Penn repeats it later on to his new partner. But the joke, I don't know if you've ever heard, I, I'm sure you've heard this joke. It's a, <laughs> a couple of bulls are standing at the top of a hill and they see a bunch of cows there. And the one bull says to the other bull, why don't we uh, run down there and fuck one of those cows? And then the other bull says, um, I got a better idea. Why don't we just walk down there and fuck them all? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic 1988 joke. I don't know what year I heard the joke, but I'm like, interesting that 88, that was probably the zenith of that joke. I've never heard that joke before. Thank you for try that. The, try that on your dad. See if he's heard that joke before. I'm like, I heard that joke way back in 1988. I saw it in the film Colors uh, with Robert Duvall's show. I thought you were about to do for Tommy Boy, the bull joke from Tommy Boy, where it's like, uh, if I take a butcher and a bull, well, is it the butcher's ass or the bull's ass? Like, remember Tommy Boy? You can't uh, see. Look at me referencing an old movie. Look I love it. I love that you're getting Tommy Boy in. Uh, again, if you want a good cop movie, I'd recommend Colors. It's a little bit dated right now. I mean, the film came out in 1988. The music is terrible. One thing about 80s music, like uh, the movie, the music is just awful like a lot of synth a lot of like weird pop you're like this 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 doesn't fit but <laughs> if you'd remove the music and look at the acting and focus on the fact it was the beginning of those gang type movies i would recommend it so those are the movies we're talking about this week spencer which is in theaters curb your enthusiasm which is on hbo ron's gone wrong in theaters and colors a classic which i watched on hbo those are all the films a couple of blurbs here just to pass along i mentioned spencer uh this is a, a, a just a crushing review from nathaniel rogers the film experience spencer is self absorbed absorbed and monotonous, like a parody of a great art film rather than the real deal. Uh, Nick Shager of the Daily Beast. I know. I have this one. Clint Worthington of Consequence. This is about Kirby Enthusiasm. Over such a long, indefatigable lifespan, Larry David and the rest of the cast and writers have constructed a formula that's virtually foolproof, and season 11 shows no strains in their comedy firmament. Yeah. That's fair. That's pretty good. And even Alex Behan says there's no such thing as too much Larry David. But to be honest, if the first hints of this latest season are anything to go by, he's never been in better form. Wow. Uh, Ron's Gone Wrong. I like this one here from Mark Kennedy of Associated Press. Ron's Gone Wrong cynically skewers tech makers but doesn't adequately address the machines they make. It's true. It's one of these movies looking at, you know, all the computers and social media, yeah. what they can do, but they really don't look at the true love-hate affair. And lastly, Colors from Janet Maslin. Though its story has the makings of a standard stuff and is sometimes sketchily told, nothing about Colors is ordinary. And also, Jeff Andrew of Time Out, never as eccentric as the last movie or out of the blue, Colors nevertheless makes most other cop movies look formulary by comparison. Those are the films we're talking about. It's now time for the wild card. Enjoy the great Leonard Maltz. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's time to bring in a living legend. That's right, Leonard Malt. You know his work for years in entertainment tonight, one of the great film critics of the last half century. Hell, of all time, he's got a new book. It's called Starstruck, which is out now. I encourage everyone to go buy Starstruck. It's got tons of incredible stories in there. Leonard, first and foremost, greetings. Good to see you. Been a fan of yours for a long time. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You're, you're pumping up my energy here. <laughs> I always come That's in very strong. No, no, no. You look in great shape. Uh, listen, I love the book, and I love the way it was structured because it's so readable in today's world people go i don't have time to read i've got too many other devices and other distractions but you put this into very easy chapters oh buster keaton here's seven pages oh jimmy stewart here's 10 pages on him so i want to start with my favorite was martin scorsese and you mentioned talking to him and seeing him at the santa barbara film festival a guy like you who knows so much about movies and a guy like scorsese who's a living almanac i want to know what you guys talk about because scorsese loves cassavetes and fellini but then he loved val luton and kubrick when you were with Scorsese, Santa Barbara Film Festival, or any other number of times. What do you and Marty talk about? Hungarian recipes. <laughs> Something off the board, right? You, you know, we're, we just dissolve into a, a sea of movie notes and quotes and trivia and opinions. And uh, it's the best time I've ever had. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a, a treat and an honor to talk to him. There's no doubt. It's treating honor for us to talk to you, and I'm sure it is for Marty to talk to you. You know, it's funny. When Robert Mitchum passed away, I remember Scorsese said, you know, Robert Mitchum was film noir. And, of course, I love Out of the Past and Cape Fear and all those great films. I loved your section about Mitchum. Tell us what was your first intro to Hollywood's original bad boy. I was going to NYU, and I was working on the daily New York University newspaper as their entertainment editor, uh, a position I don't think existed until I came on. (laughs) <laughs> I sort of invented the job. Uh, we had a pretty professional paper, actually, four days a week, and uh, it was it was fun to work on. And it gave me a good reason to cut classes. So one day, the phone rings, and it's a publicist from MGM asking if I would like to attend a press conference with Robert Mitchum the next day, prom- promoting their upcoming film by David Lean, the big movie called Ryan's Daughter. And... Uh, Sure, why not? And uh, so uh, I did a little homework on him. You know, had my 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 ideas in in focus, and I go to the MGM building where they had a nice size screening room, kind of like a, a, a smaller auditorium at one of the multiplexes. Okay, 
So you go into this nice plush screening room and it's filled with guys like me and girls like me, all 20 somethings. And uh, we're waiting and we're waiting. And there's several publicists pacing anxiously uh, up and down the aisles. And they're waiting for Mr. Mitchum. And he suddenly arrives, he bursts into the room and goes right to the front of the room, holding a duffel bag, carrying a duffel bag. And he explains that he has a brick of marijuana and that he's gonna be uh, flying through Chicago and that they're kind of picky there. So he can't get the brick through you know, security. And so he's gonna have to sift it down. And he sits down in the front row and instead of looking at us in the audience and answering questions, he starts doing exactly that. <laughs> and one of the publicists, you know, uh, nervously you know, whispers to another one. And one of them gingerly approaches him and says, uh, Mr. Mitchum, could you go up to the podium, please? He says, yeah, can, can someone help me out here? And he enlists someone in, in the crowd to continue sifting his marijuana <laughs> while he answers questions. And that's just the beginning of that saga. Uh, it was an unforgettable day. Unforgettable. Yeah, Baby, I Don't Care is one of my favorite books. That's the Lee Server book about Mitch. I'm right. sure you've read it. It's, right. it's incredible. It's so well-written. And it gives you a real essence of, like you said, that laissez-faire attitude of Mitch. He was so laconic and it's so underrated and underappreciated. Yes. And, you know, he, he didn't want to pretend like he was a great actor. But, of course, he was when he did care about the work. He didn't want to let on that, it, that he did care. For you, is there a favorite Mitchum film? I think Night of the Hunter is as good as, good as it gets. Well, yeah, that, that's damn good. Uh, I I think he is the scariest person I've ever seen in a movie because I believe him in Cape Fear. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, he's not, when Mr. Scorsese did the remake, which I didn't care for very much, he turned that bad guy played by De Niro uh, into a Freddy Krueger. You know, it was a boogeyman and that's what he's supposed to be. But when Mitchum played him, he was real. That's why he was so scary. You could believe that a guy like that might exist. Oh, yeah, with that hat and the Hawaiian shirt just leering at those characters, him and Gregory Peck. I did love how Scorsese flipped those guys. So Mitchum was actually on the good side, so to speak, and Peck was a defendant for De Niro in the remake. Right, right. At one point, Mitchum has that great line when Max Katie De Niro takes off his shirt. He goes, I don't know whether to look at him or read him because he has all those <laughs> tattoos everywhere. Um, we get to one of the big revelations of Starstruck, Leonard Maltin's new book. I encourage everyone to check it out. Hugh Hefner. You spent a lot of time with Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion, and one of your friends dated a playmate, and he said, we had one thing in common. We were both in love with her looks. Um, what was it like hanging with Hugh Hefner, who was a guy who loved old movies? This, this chapter, Leonard, was not as salacious as I was hoping it would be, but it really showed me a different side of Hugh Hefner. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, you know, I, I, I grew up on the other coast, in New York, and in the suburbs in Jersey when I was a kid, and almost everything on the West Coast from Disneyland to the Playboy Mansion was very exotic in my mind. Never did I ever dream that I would not only meet uh, Hugh Hefner or Hef, as he insisted we all call him. Uh, uh, that's why when I say things like, well, I was talking to Hef, you know, that's not something you can uh, at first easily drop into a sentence and have your friends keep a straight face. Anyway, I met him because of our mutual love of movies, especially old movies. And uh, I mean, he on Sunday nights, he screened all the new films. He screened, you know, the cream of the new releases. But on Friday and Saturday nights, old movies. And he had a, uh, a regular crowd of uh, 
people of, uh, shall we say, middle age and, and above. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was one of the younger ones there, actually. And, uh, but this is uh, 25 or more years ago. And he was just the most gracious host. He really loved the movies. He, he presented them well. Uh, he talked about them, happy to talk about them. And he put his money where his mouth was because he helped fund the preservation of a lot of really significant films and helped fund documentaries about mostly people, women, actually, women who interested him in film history. Uh, behind the scenes women like screenwriter Francis Marion, who wrote a lot of Mary Pickford's best movies. And uh, Clara Bow, who of course was known as the It Girl. And when it came to It, Hefner knew what he was talking about. And uh, he, he saved the Hollywood sign, but not once, but twice. You know, he wrote a personal check. I mean, he didn't go to, you know, didn't do it through, you know, stock trades. He wrote a personal check for $900,000 to buy the real estate, the actual ground that the Hollywood sign resides on, which the city was going to let go to the highest bidder for, for, for real estate development. I mean, this is a guy who really cared about that stuff. He cared about other things, too. But <laughs> I came along a little later in his life when, you know, when he, he was... Uh, he, he was still Hef. He was still very active, if you take my meaning. But, uh, uh, but, but he really loved and cared about movies. So you're telling me you're watching these old films with Hef and his friends, you know, a John Ford Western or a Howard Hawks movie. Nobody would slip in like a little last tango in Paris just for Hef? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, a, it was almost, all, I, I hesitate to go beyond that, almost sedate. The atmosphere there. It was very convivial. <laughs> the, the, the same crowd turned up almost every week, and we got friendly with each other if we didn't already know each other. And uh, a very congenial place to be. Well, at one point, it's amazing. You were working for, as you wrote in the book, Starstruck, Disney, AARP, and Playboy. I mean, that is an incredible trifecta. And Roger Ebert helped land you that job at Playboy. Tell me about that. Well, uh, Hef is a Chicagoan, and so uh, the magazine started there. And uh, established roots there. So when I was hired on Roger's recommendation by the uh, the editor in chief and assigned an editor, a wonderful guy that I worked with for six years, they were all Chicago guys. And the man who was my editor was very erudite. I just graduated college, I think, with a degree in classic literature. <laughs> and uh, how did he come to work for Playboy? A friend of his had done the same thing, and it was already working there, and it was a steady job and a very professional atmosphere. So this friend recommended my guy follow in his path. And, you know, meanwhile, somewhere else down the line, maybe they do something else. But then they got to like the job and they like the regular regular paycheck. It's great how that ends up working out. Everyone has their own film critics or film criticism, no matter what the publication might be. How about the story about Michael Keaton? I just saw him on 60 Minutes. He was profiled by L. John Wertheim. He's got a, a new series, Dope Sick, on Hulu. The story you told I thought was fascinating about Michael Keaton and Batman. What was that? Well, I always wondered. You remember when he was uh, announced that he was going to play Batman in the film that was to be directed by Tim Burton, the one that sort of reinvented Batman uh, on screen for a new generation? And uh, there was such a hue and cry from the fan kingdom. Michael Keaton, he's a comic actor. Well, it's the wrong guy. This is a stupid idea. Well, the Internet didn't exist yet. And yet it became, today we'd say it went viral. 
and everyone will know what you're talking about. But that news did go viral then, even before there was an internet to, to, to help that along. And so I wondered if he was aware of it. And he said, this is how he found out. They were shooting the film in London and he was going through a custody battle over his son, I believe, back in, I don't know if it was in California, but here in the States. And so every weekend he commuted home on the Concorde. You remember the Concorde jet that sliced the travel time to London? So it was feasible, not easy, but feasible for him to, you know, jet back and forth every weekend. And on one of those trips, he picked up the Wall Street Journal and uh, on the plane. And the Wall Street Journal has these very distinctive line drawing portraits of the people it profiles. If you've ever seen one, you, you know that what I mean. They stand out. It's not a typical illustration or, or a photograph. He saw him. He saw himself <laughs> in one of those drawings. He said, what's this? And that's where he read about this, you know, this uh, big hoo-ha, this big kerfuffle uh, over him being cast as Batman. And it rattled him. And when he was on the set that Monday, you know, it, it shook his confidence. Uh, fortunately, he seemed to have found it again. He nailed it, right? He's really good in that film. Yeah, it's one of his most iconic roles. There's no question about it. And typically the fans shut up. Yeah. All those people who had been hollering and screaming, no good, no good, had to surrender. Uh, I love the old time actors, as I said, the stories you told about Jimmy Stewart. I mean, uh, the fact you get to meet Jimmy Stewart, work with him, uh, no prompter that day. There's this great homage to It's a Wonderful Life. Tell us about that. My bosses, I had two bosses at ET at the time uh, who didn't give much of a hoot about Frank Capra, the great director, but Frank Capra's son <laughs> was a, a force. In, in the NBC uh, station universe, and they wanted to suck up to him. So for Frank Capra's 91st birthday, they missed the 90th. <laughs> Usually you're working round numbers, but they missed the 90th. So for the 91st, they wanted to do a tribute to the great, great director, Frank Capra. And they hired Jimmy Stewart to host this two-part tribute. And they hired, they, hired, they already had me. Uh, they, they told me they wanted me to write the script for the tribute, including Mr. Stewart's what's called intro and outro segments on camera, and which I gladly did. And fortunately, I had recently interviewed him about It's a Wonderful Life for a book called The It's a Wonderful Life book. Uh, you can get used copies online. It's a terrific book. I can say that because I only contributed my little piece to it. I had nothing to do with, with uh, devising or executing the book. But I, I had his voice in my head. So I, I wrote a script I felt pretty sure he'd feel comfortable reading. And uh, that day when he arrived at, at ET, we'd done everything we could to prepare for him to have, you know, the kind of drinks he liked on the set or snacks, or, you know, and uh, his longtime press agent was with him, and he said, no fuss, no muss. He's a professional. He comes in and does his job. Well, we'd asked if he wanted a teleprompter and if he was comfortable using a teleprompter. And he said, sure. But he thought we meant cue cards. <laughs> and, um, and when he said, well, I've never done it before, working with a teleprompter, we our, we went into panic mode. Uh, somebody find, you know, poster board and mark, markers and get going. 
And then he said, well, let me try it. So he, he did a little warm-up read on the teleprompter, and within moments he had it down. No, no big, no big deal. Oh, thank goodness. And uh, then just working with him that day to see how he wasn't happy unless it was just right. That was the, the takeaway on that. Unless it was as good as it could be, he was not satisfied. And when it was as good as it could be, it was as good as it gets because it's Jimmy Stewart. I was going to say, Jimmy Stewart, uh, as many people say, Tom Hanks is a modern-day Jimmy Stewart. Well, yeah. he can't do much better than the original because he was just so mm -hmm. um, so iconic in so many films. It's funny, you think of It's a Wonderful Life, but I just love him in Vertigo, the way Hitchcock was able oh, to sure. tap into some of the darkness of Jimmy Stewart, right? Absolutely. Uh, Buster Keaton, there's also great stories in there. Emma Thompson, Francis Ford Coppola, Benny June. Of course, Johnny Depp's paying homage to him. So I want everyone to check out Starstruck. A couple more before we let you go. I know this is so hard, Leonard. 30 years at E.T. I've had 50 years as a film critic. By the way, I'm in Hohokus, New Jersey, Bergen County. You grew up in Teaneck. I read in the book, so I'm, we're, I'm a stone's throw here from Teaneck, New Jersey. But I'm curious, and this is a hard question, your five favorite films. I know you get asked all the time. Can you give me five favorite? Well, I can give you a couple and the, number four and number five keep changing every time I get asked this question. <laughs> number one is Casablanca. Yep. All-time favorite movie. <clears throat> number two is Citizen Kane uh, because it, it is, I think it is the greatest American movie. Uh, every time I watch it, I see something I didn't see the last time. I discover something new. How many movies can you say that about? Um, Number three, Bogart again, The Maltese Falcon. Another film I never get tired of. Number four, Singing in the Rain. My favorite musical, and there are many others that could go along with it. And number five is kind of the, um, the, 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 the hot spot where I, if I have to leave out the hundreds of others I want to put in that spot, uh, I, I might say, on one day I might say His Girl Friday, Hmm. Howard Hawks yeah. film with Cary Grant yeah. and Russell Russell. Great uh, dialogue. Or, or A Night at the Opera mm -hmm. uh, with the Marx Brothers or uh, the original King Kong or Dumbo. Mm -hmm. uh, so many others. So many others. Boiling it down to five ain't easy. No, it's very hard. You mentioned the Marx Brothers. So Step Brothers is not going to make the cut in your top five all time. <laughs> And 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 the and the, the converse, of course, because you've seen so many bad movies, and I know it's hard to just throw the, throw someone under the bus. But come on, give me a few of the worst movies you ever had to sit through. Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Stephen King said he got tired of people taking his novels and short stories, and 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 ruining them in the screen adaptations. So in this case, it's a film about demonic trucks. You understand. Uh, <laughs> In this case, he decided to direct the film himself, as well as adapting his story. And so he has no one to blame but himself for this excruciatingly bad movie. So Maximum Overdrive, that, uh, yeah, I don't think there's gonna be much worse than that. By the way, I love, I just noticed the cushion behind you. I was misinformed, which is of course a great reference to Casablanca. So you are completely a Casablanca fan, absolutely. <laughs> What's your what's your what's your best what's your best dumb movie of all time? A movie that critics usually you know look down on, but you just you you enjoy it. Well, Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> Starring 
indeed, Mr. Bela Lugosi and uh, 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 two guys, two nightclub performers who were the poor man's Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And uh, when I say poor, I mean impoverished. And uh, there is a cult surrounding this film and surrounding those two guys. And uh, uh, I'm part of that cult. Listen, uh, you mentioned King Kong, so definitely a fondness for gorillas. My son Shaz loves gorillas. I got no issue with that. I'm a very pro-gorilla. Leonard Malton, I'm very pro him as well. His book is called Starstruck. Uh, all those years watching on E.T. That's the last one from me. Mary Hart, avid Dodgers fan. I see her all the time. Do you keep in touch with Mary Hart? Any members of the E.T. family? I saw Mary not long ago. And uh, it was her birthday yesterday. Oh, that's great. And, uh, uh, and I have a couple of other friends who became lifelong friends from uh, from working together at ET. Uh, it's great to know that that's actual friendship on air and off air as well. Starstruck is the book, the legendary Leonard Balton. Go check it out. Leonard, can't thank you enough for the time. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right, thanks so much to Leonard Malton. E.T., probably a little bit before your time, Cody, but you know the name Leonard Malton. If I say to you, Mary Hart and John Tesh, you're thinking of Leonard Malton. They're talking movies, aren't you? When you first said E.T., I thought you meant about the movie E.T., <laughs> and I thought maybe he was in it, and I thought maybe before his time as a movie expert, he was an actor. But right. then I was like, oh, he's talking about E.T. like the... Hold on, Entertainment Tonight. I love Entertainment Tonight. Like, don't get me wrong. I'd rather be associated with Entertainment Tonight than E.T honestly at this point I mean, yeah I mean, just... listen steven spielberg i get it all right otherworldly alien sure but no entertainment tonight how about the mm -hmm. fact mary hart she used to make kramer go crazy right her voice would just drive him nuts on that one episode of seinfeld bringing it back I, to seinfeld i just want to hear the real leonard malton and hugh hefner stories that's yeah. what i want to hear i'm like dude you, you tagged a couple of playmates give come it on, up dude. leonard give it up <laughs> lenny be honest come on a couple of threesomes In let's go oh uh, invite me to that party right. The next Leonard Malton book, him and Kendra Wilkinson, The Playmates uh, Next Door. To be a fly on the wall. To be a fly on the wall. <laughs> Thanks so much for checking out Cinephile. Uh, we got lots more coming up next week. Belfast, which is from director Kenneth Branagh. That's a huge Academy Award contender. That's out in theaters this week, so I'll review that. We'll find some other stuff to review as well. All that more coming up in Cinephile. Make sure you go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. And I'll see you at the movies. Two more away from 200. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.